Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Beckton Sewage Treatment Works sits at the far eastern edge of London. Here, raw sewage from more than 4 million people is being treated. Faecal matter, amongst many other contaminants, is removed, leaving clean water to flow back into the River Thames. The sewage is coming from underneath us here and then goes through these channels as you can see over there. If you've got a little bit of weak stomach, just, uh, just Earlier this year, this sewage treatment facility was at the centre of a worrying public health story. Polio has been detected in sewage samples collected from a treatment works in East London. Traces of the polio virus were detected in London's sewage system, prompting a warning from British authorities today. The virus has been detected in sewage in a number of London boroughs. And in fact, it's been found 116 times in London's wastewater. Since 2020, Britain's public health authority has routinely tested London's wastewater for a range of pathogens. These include viruses such as SARS-CoV-2, which causes COVID-19, as Josh Calloway, who works at Beckton, explains. So we have uh, a lot of units across different areas of the site which sample different things. We're working closely with the UK Health Security Agency to provide that data to help pinpoint where these sorts of outbreaks may or may not be occurring within London. So we're assisting in, in providing those samples. It's essentially what's called a pinch valve, which just suctions a bit of the, the sewage output in a sterilised bottle that's locked away and uh, taken away for sampling. This year, tests on the wastewater revealed the presence of polio virus. The last case of wild-type polio in Britain was found in 1984, and the country has been officially polio-free since 2003. The polio virus found at Beckton was not the wild type. Instead, it's what's known as the vaccine-derived polio virus, a strain that's related to the weakened virus used in oral vaccines. The virus, it seemed, had been circulating. That can be worrying in places where the uptake of vaccines is low. In rare cases, people can become infected with the vaccine-derived strain of poliovirus and can become paralysed. Finding the virus in London's wastewater spurred public health bodies into action. They beefed up similar projects at other sewage facilities around the country and urged the parents of unvaccinated children to get their kids protected. Similar findings came to light this summer in New York State. 
After decades off our collective radar, polio has once again reared its head, with health experts urging unvaccinated Americans to get inoculated against the disease. While the risks to public health from polio remains low, the episode serves as a very good example of how monitoring wastewater can provide important public health information. But the potential of this type of surveillance goes far beyond infectious diseases. Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist's science correspondent. Today we'll explain how spying on sewage could save lives, from monitoring infectious diseases to tracking which drugs people are using. We'll examine why wastewater monitoring could be an invaluable tool for public health and how more of these projects could be set up around the world. With me today to explore all of this is Gilad Amit, the Economist Science Correspondent. Good to have you here, Gilad. Thanks, Alok. Good to be here. Now, before we go on to talk about its future potential, Gilad, just explain to me what actually is wastewater surveillance? It's basically taking samples from public sewers. And that can be at sewage treatment plants. It can be under manhole covers, anywhere where collective waste is transported through a city. And what people do is they can either do something like drop a bucket in order to collect a sample, or they can leave something in the flow of the wastewater. A tampon, for example, is a very good, effective sampler in order to absorb some of the surrounding water. And then that is then taken to a lab. The contents are analysed, their genomes are sequenced, and you have a sense of which organisms are living in the wastewater. The idea has really come into its own since the COVID pandemic, hasn't it? But it's actually not a new idea, is it? No, uh, not really. Most histories dated to the 1930s when there were polio epidemics in the United States and authorities started experimenting with testing wastewater to see if polio in the wastewater was spreading the disease and then also if it could be used as a way of measuring how widespread it was in the population. So then more recently, during the COVID-19 pandemic, how did it take off? I think it's important to stress just how rapid the uptake of this has been. Two years ago, there were only 30 or so sites that we knew of in the world monitoring sewage for COVID-19. It was a real experimental program. And now there are over 3,500 in 70 countries. So it's really something that's, that's taken off in a way that it didn't in the century or so before that. And the reason is that finally all the, all the right pieces came together. There's the technology needed to conduct the testing, and there is a public health crisis of a scale that we haven't seen in decades that makes it worthwhile to invest in it. And the first team to actually publish results that showed this had legs as a monitoring tool was based at KWR, which is a water research institute in the Netherlands. The Netherlands is ideal for this kind of work because practically 100% of the population is plumbed into the sewage system, one of the highest rates in the world. So if you test the country's sewage, you can effectively test the whole population. And I spoke to one of the researchers on that team, a microbiologist called Hertjan Medima, who's a professor of water and health at um, the Delft University of Technology. I think COVID is one of those examples like poliovirus, 
where you have a lot of transmission that is going under the radar of the conventional surveillance. So where an additional surveillance that is has a broader window or scope uh, because everybody goes to the toilet and not everybody to the testing street. Hadjian also said they were able to pick up the arrival of COVID-19 in the Netherlands before clinical testing could do so. They concluded that wastewater analysis was capable of spotting waves of infections several weeks before conventional nasal swab testing. At the beginning of the pandemic, that was certainly the early warning of uh, the emergence um, of the virus in a relatively high resolution. So uh, on a city level or a town level, you could say, hey, the virus is coming. And what I also found interesting was that wastewater monitoring showed there were more cases of the virus in the population than the conventional testing could pick up. Our close collaboration with the city of Rotterdam and the the public health agency of Rotterdam was that uh, because we were looking at different city areas, we could also see that in particular city areas, the sewage signal was high relative to the incidence of reported cases meaning that there was more virus in the sewage that would be accounted for by the number of cases that were reported. So that was an indication of underreporting in those city areas. It's absolutely incredible that they could pick up these waves of infection before the virus actually turned up in in the country. I mean, I remember, you know, whatever it was, back in March 2020, everyone around the world was wondering when COVID-19 would turn up at their doorstep. And the fact that they could pick up the virus so easily, it's it's fascinating. It sounds like it was the makings of an incredible public health tool. I mean, when was um, Hertan doing this work? They took samples from Schiphol Airport in February 2020, but didn't get around to testing them until March. And by that point, the virus had already been found through clinical testing. But had they tested their sample immediately, they would have been able to identify the first case uh, in the Netherlands. That's amazing. It's the sort of plot of a horror film, isn't it? That they've got the information, but they just don't use it. And of course, in hindsight, we can see how important that might have been. Um, How sensitive is wastewater then as a test for COVID-19? So at the moment, all we have are estimates because so much of this technology has been developed as a sort of as a life raft, basically being cobbled together while we're still navigating stormy seas. So we still have to do proper analyses of these techniques. But the best estimates so far say that you could probably identify one case of COVID-19 per 14,000 or so people whose sewage is being sampled. So it's quite a cost-effective way to screen populations. If you wanted to test an entire city or entire country, you could save millions or or billions if you were doing it this way versus conventional clinical testing. Okay, well, all of that sounds really promising. Um, I mean, how easy was it for researchers to persuade the municipal authorities that, you know, messing around with sewage was a productive use of resources at this point in the pandemic? I mean, you know, you you put your finger on it. It was a tough sell at the beginning because this was a comparatively untested technology. It was a time of tremendous stress. And so in many cases around the world, the the same story was repeated in India, in Canada, um, in Europe as well, that the researchers basically volunteered their services and were doing it off their own bat in their own time and compiling their own data and then bringing it to public health authorities and saying, look, you know, we have actual valuable data. Why don't you integrate this into your into your management systems. And to some extent, this this is still slowly being done because public health authorities tend to move quite slowly. And as you said, the cause of the disease could have been very different if this technology had been properly implemented 
very soon. And the microbiologist I mentioned before, Hertjan Medima, he told me that the Netherlands was actually in quite a good position to push forward with this at the start of the pandemic. I had in this very early stage also contacted the water virologist, so to say, in, uh, in Italy and in Spain, because the virus was already raging around there. But they had a complete lockdown, including the lab facilities. So they could not start to embark on it while we could. So we had sort of a, the opportunity to show that as the virus introduced in our country, uh, also it introduced in our wastewaters, there was a, a nice association between the two. And then, of course, as the pandemic wore on and new variants of concern started emerging, they discovered that there was also potential to, to spot those. Wastewater does allow looking for variants of concern, if you know what to look for. So when the variants start to appear in South Africa, uh, then you need to quickly understand what you're looking for. And then you can start to look in wastewater for or with a targeted PCR or with sequences to understand if it's already there. So there are reports of finding Omicron in Germany in an airport before the first case of Omicron was reported. So almost three years into the pandemic, wastewater monitoring has been, continues to be, and hopefully will continue to be a really useful tool in monitoring for COVID as well as other infectious diseases. Now, this is probably the ideal time to use wastewater monitoring as a tool for COVID-19 because people are starting to be less symptomatic. They're starting to be a bit more haphazard about reporting the results of their tests. So there is no really good authoritative way of knowing where the disease is spreading in the population. Wastewater can't be cheated so easily. But other diseases are really beckoning researchers to, to apply the same techniques and possibly, you know, monkeypox, polio. These are all things that are already being tested for. So polio is something that in Western countries now seems to have returned in wastewater and, and is causing concern. Monkeypox, of course, is another outbreak that's uh, spreading throughout the world. Give me a sense of what else you could detect and, and, and where in the world is it being used? So I spoke to researchers in Bangalore who said that they were particularly keen to adapt this technology to look at typhoid, dengue, avian influenza because of large poultry farms. Researchers in Malawi talked about cholera, rotavirus, shigella. So it really depends on the priorities of the season, of the region. Um, but so long as your disease is infectious and it manifests itself in human waste, there seems to be no limit to what you could investigate. One place where a relatively low-tech testing program might have a big impact is Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh. So it's about 7am in the morning and we have just started for the sample collection. We are halfway through the camp and it's heavily raining today and it will take a little bit longer because some of the roads are actually flooded very badly. Nuhu Amin is a medical researcher at ICDDRB, a research institute in Bangladesh. Finally, we are at the sampling point. It's a bit, bit crowded here. Children are playing with the rainwater. 
and there are lots of ration is going on distribution center people are collecting ration food gas cylinder and other supplies here Nuhu also leads a program that tests the wastewater at a Rohingya refugee camp located in Cox's Bazar, near the border with Myanmar. So while collecting sample, uh, we usually wipe the gloves first and then sterile our utensils. So people are gathering here to watch what we're doing here because children are very much keen to actually watch here the what we are doing so taking a sample will require about 10 to 15 minutes because of the aseptic precaution or uh, sterilization procedure we have so after we wear the glove we usually uh, take about 500 ml of sample to a sterile bottle so all the sterile supply usually come from our Dhaka laboratory and we are keeping this within the cool box that contain temperature less than 10 degrees centigrade. Obtaining useful samples can be a challenge in places where there's no sewage system. So where we are usually going to collect the sample, which point? This is the junction of the community drain, okay? So junction of the community drain is actually representing a large community where uh, multiple drain actually joined together. What we are doing, we are actually collecting sample from uh, for the isocoping to understand the what is the concentration of pathogens uh, in different type of environmental compartments. For example, septic tank or the pit latrines. When I say pit latrines in Rohingya camp, there are like people usually there is no actually connected sewage network, only the toilets actually over there. So we try to collect the sample from the community toilet where 10 to 15 households actually use that toilet. So when you're doing the collection, do you have particular pathogens in mind that you're looking for? Yes, we actually we are focusing on vaccine uh, preventable diseases. And among them, it is uh, like we are focusing on SARS-CoV-2 virus and then uh, Salmonella, Vibrio cholera and rotavirus. Can you tell me how monitoring all of these pathogens and the, the, the concentrations at different times of the year, how is it going to help the people living there? Well, what, what information will they be able to get uh, about their sort of their lives there that, that might help them to maybe avoid diseases or be helped with treatments in the future? What can they get back from it? One is actually the signal, uh, the health sector or the wash sector will get the signal from us that these people are at risk. So the health and wash sector can do some preventive measure to actually tackle this. Another things with this project, we'll also uh, track different type of strain of virus uh, that which new strain actually coming in next couple of weeks or what type of virulence those uh, virus or uh, pathogens are. So these two are very like primary objective from our side. But at the same time, like the vaccination is very important that when should we actually provide the vaccine to for these four type of pathogens or four type of diseases. 
once the samples have been extracted and refrigerated, they need to go to a laboratory in Dhaka, Bangladesh's capital. It will take about uh, 12 hours from now. That can sometimes mean the samples travel on a bus for up to 12 hours. This is a process that's repeated by the team every week. Nowadays, we are very much depending on the other type of health surveillance, like hospital-based surveillance, community-based surveillance, and we just collect the information or collect the sample from the human. But that is not feasible, particularly for the low and middle-income countries. Human-based surveillance are not feasible because most of the time people don't reach to the hospital or healthcare facilities. But with this type of surveillance system, we are not depending on the population. And because everything is in the environment, so you just need to understand the population and need to select appropriate sampling point. And if you can define these two, you are able to actually define how much people actually are at risk and what should be the timing of that. What is the actually frequency of disease will be actually transmitting in the community. So that's the benefit, very important benefit for the community and the health sector as well to understand that what type of disease is coming and we don't need to go to the person in person to collect the sample. So this is actually a very futuristic things and a lot of people, the epidemiologists understand this theory. Infectious diseases are more likely to spread in unsanitary places. Perhaps surveillance systems like this could in the future detect new disease outbreaks before they spread further to become epidemics or even pandemics. The potential of wastewater monitoring doesn't end there. Coming up, Gilad and I will look at how snooping on sewage can reveal a lot more about people's health and even their private lives. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Today on Babbage, we're going from lavatory to laboratory and investigating what data from sewage systems can reveal about the health of a population. The Economist's science correspondent, Gilad Amit, is back with me. Now, Gilad, we've talked about how wastewater can be used to monitor infectious diseases. But what else is there in sewage that's worth knowing about if you're a public health scientist? Well, it's... It's phenomenal. The phrase I like to use is that because we are what we eat, we also excrete what we are. And there is a huge amount of private information that we disclose accidentally every time we use the bathroom. And that's everything from eating habits. You know, you can detect levels of a chemical called phytoestrogen, which is thought to be linked to the levels of plant-based diets in a community. There's an Israeli company called Kando, which runs the country's 
wastewater surveillance program, and it hopes to study levels of chemicals like serotonin, which are thought to potentially be linked to depression, although the connection isn't rock solid. Um, you could also monitor consumption of nicotine, alcohol, illicit drugs, illicit drugs, prescription drugs. All of these things are revealed in wastewater. Okay, so it's almost a sort of picture of a place's lifestyle and or collective lifestyle, essentially, isn't it? That's a great way of putting it. So what other kinds of drugs could be monitored in, in sewage? One very important class of drugs is antibiotics and a growing problem in the world. It was perhaps one of the most important health priorities before COVID is the fact that antibiotics are being overused and this is promoting resistance from the microbes in question to these antibiotics. And we may eventually find ourselves in a situation where we have no functioning antibiotics against some very common microbes. And levels of antibiotic use can be used to monitor the scale of this problem in different regions and and keep tabs on whether you know there is too much prescription or there is too much use. There's also, for I think over a decade, there's been this network of sewage analysts in Europe. Uh, the network is called SCORE. Whether the pun in the name is deliberate or not, I'm not sure. But it's been monitoring levels of cocaine and cannabis in cities across Europe in order to sort of inform authorities about what the risks to the population are from the consumption of these drugs. And, you know, there's, there's been, there was a case, I think it was last year in Seoul in, in, in South Korea, where wastewater surveillance identified levels of Viagra that were much higher than what had been prescribed, suggesting that a lot of residents of Seoul were getting Viagra, not through their local pharmacist. Uh, well, I mean, I think that's useful to know. Um, OK, thanks, Gilad. As Gilad just mentioned, data from sewers can gather details of population-level drug use far more reliably than the traditional methods of doing so. In America, this is particularly useful for dealing with a different public health crisis. When we started the company, we decided to focus on what was the biggest public health crisis at that time, at that point in time. So this is 2017, 2018. And it was without a doubt the opioid epidemic, at least here in the United States. Nusha Gailey is the founder of a company called Biobot Analytics, which aims to transform sewers into public health observatories. A lot of the data that is used to really understand the severity of substance use disorder in communities today relies on overdose deaths or non-fatal overdoses. That data is gathered by public health departments at the county level, state level, and federal level with the CDC. And that information is driving not only the design and, and deployment of programming and resources, but also hundreds of millions of dollars of aid. So how can wastewater be used then to monitor the effects of something like the opioid problem? We really look at it as being a data problem. Studies show that less than 1% of individuals who suffer from substance use disorder are actually overdosing. So that means that this data that we are most commonly looking at is only representative of less than 1% of individuals who suffer from substance use disorder. Yet our programming, our resources should be reaching everybody who suffers from substance use disorder. And so that's really the value that wastewater monitoring can bring to this problem. When you are consuming, whether it's a prescription opioid 
or an illicit opioid, when you consume that, you are actually excreting chemical markers of that drug in your urine. And so when you use the toilet, you're peeing it out, it's getting flushed down the toilet where it's aggregating and mixing with urine from hundreds of thousands of other people. So then we're able to tap into the, whether it's a wastewater treatment plant or a collection station, to actually collect a sample that's now representative of hundreds of thousands of people and get an overall sense of how much opioid consumption and use is happening here and are there any differences with what we're seeing in the overdose data. If there are significant differences, then maybe we should be rethinking how we're distributing and designing our programming and our resource allocation. Can you give me some more details of how your system works then, in terms of the number of sampling sites and where they are? And what about results? Are you having any early results at the moment? We launched our opioid product initially in 2018. With some of the early, early communities that we worked with, one in particular, I remember they were seeing an increase in overdose deaths year over year, and yet they weren't doing as bad as some other cities in the state. And so they weren't getting a tremendous amount of funding or support. And so the mayor's office decided that they needed to collect further data on their own to really show and understand what the problem was so that the mayor's office could address it. And so that's when we started working with them. And what we found in working with them in the first six months was that contrary to you know, what they thought, consumption was actually being driven by prescription opioid consumption. Coming into this work, they thought that heroin was likely the culprit, so an illicit opioid. And they had set up needle exchange units, but weren't getting any engagement from the community. We were able to show them that actually prescription opioids were driving a lot of the consumption. We weren't seeing a lot of heroin. We weren't seeing a lot of fentanyl. And so what they did was set up medication drop-off units and really launch an educational campaign engaging with the residents to, to talk to them about the adverse effects of prescription pain medication and how to dispose of it safely. That's fascinating. So you can actually help communities directly by actually gathering the data that perhaps would be really difficult to gather otherwise. Nusha, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Gilad, I found it really interesting to hear about all the promise that wastewater monitoring has for public health. But presumably there also comes a point where some legitimate privacy concerns also start to crop up. I mean, in all the scenarios we've discussed, once you flush your toilet, um, very private matters can start to become public. I mean, a bit more public than you perhaps intended. I think the important thing to remember is that not all toilets are equally anonymizing. Um, and toilets are connected to watersheds, which collect the waste of a certain number of people. And in some places, you could have three million people whose wastewater passes through a single treatment plant, in which case anonymization is total. Alternatively, you might be in an apartment building, you might be in a hospital or a, or a prison with a much sort of smaller number of people where the wastewater itself doesn't tell you who it belongs to, but surveillance of other kinds is, is achievable and then the data can be partially de-anonymized. There were a couple of examples I found in my reporting in places like Singapore and Hong Kong where this combination of wastewater surveillance and, you know, shoe leather epidemiology 
was able to track down individual cases in apartment buildings. So potential for de-anonymizing exists, but really the resources you would need to expend in order to do it in a meaningful way are enormous. Let's take an example. I mean, are are police forces anywhere taking an interest in, in the data that's becoming available through this means? Yes. I mean, flushing things down the toilet is an effective way of of destroying evidence. And, you know, whether it's illicit drugs or components for explosives, these can all be found in wastewater and the things that are of interest to to police. And there was at least one drug bust in uh, a city in China called Zhongshan that was facilitated by wastewater monitoring. Now, it's maybe no surprise that the Chinese government and, and authorities are interested in monitoring their citizens. But should people in other countries be concerned about having their wastewater monitored without their knowledge? The people who work in public health are obviously very keen to distance themselves from these kinds of applications because these systems only work if they have the consent of the people that they're monitoring, and if people are willing to have themselves tested. Once people start withholding their data or or confusing or confounding the data, then it hurts everyone. Authorities have ways of accessing data once it's collected. So the important thing is to be very clear about what is possible and what is actually being collected and what can be done with it. So in the US, there are certain guidelines on the size of the watershed below which you know you won't publicly announced data. And this is really important, I think, in order to win the support of the public, because informal surveys that have been done show that people really buy into this idea. But when you start saying, well, what about, you know, if your employer is starting to use this, or if the police can camp out outside your house and monitor the data that comes through your individual pipe, then people start to get more concerned. Okay, so here we are again in another classic example of of a new technology that produces data that has all sorts of untold benefits. And, you know, we, we would argue that it's a good thing. But then on the flip side of it, we're worried about data and the privacy and use and handling of that data, which is also a legitimate concern. Um, How do you start to balance the public health interests with the privacy interests in this particular case? I think transparency is really the most important thing. I think people need to feel like they know what is being done with their wastewater and to what end. For example, during the pandemic, I traveled home to Israel to visit my family. Uh, I was fortunate to be able to make the trip. And I discovered in reporting this piece that at the time, the wastewater passed in the bathroom at Tel Aviv airport was being analyzed for signs of COVID-19 and incoming passengers. I wasn't aware of this. There may have been a sign on the on the wall that I missed. But I think you're having people emerge from the pandemic, as it were, into a world with a really elaborate system of wastewater surveillance that didn't exist when the pandemic started. And I think it's going to be really important from public health authorities, from wastewater managers, from the media as well, to communicate to the public what it is, what the capacities are, what they're being used for, and why, in order to ensure that people can give consent that is as informed as possible. Okay, so assuming that those issues can be ironed out, and it's that's by no means a given, um, how easy do you think it's going to be to make wastewater monitoring something that's a central plank of public health monitoring around the world? It depends to a very large extent on where in the world you are and what your circumstances are. It's much easier to do 
if you have a well-maintained wastewater infrastructure. If you have 99% of the population plugged in, as you do in the Netherlands, then there are real benefits. Other countries that have a smaller percentage of a population that flushes their wastewater into the communal sewers, they might struggle. There are other sort of logistical difficulties that are going to arise. You want detailed maps of your sewers, not just so that you know where to put your samplers in order to collect the wastewater, but also so that you can try as much as you can to have your watersheds map onto the catchment areas for your hospitals or the boroughs or the regions or the counties that your uh, public health data is geared towards so that these data complement each other and don't require a lot of intricate working out in order to in order to paint a coherent picture and how easy is it for monitoring to get started in places then so I think we're now sort of past the point where people need convincing to get a program started, but we might be at the point where they need convincing to maintain them. Um, I was speaking to Doug Manuel, who's a scientist at uh, the Ottawa Hospital in Canada, who wrote a report for the World Bank on wastewater surveillance in, in Latin America and the Caribbean. And he said it's very hard to get this sustained commitment once the immediate need has passed. The UK program's collapsed, you know, as of today, and um, the Germany program is building up. I think we're, we're aware of this sort of new programs can kind of go through these waves where there's enthusiasm and in initial funding and then lack of sustained support. They collapse, they may rebuild. So that speaks to the idea that people, governments, authorities are interested in sort of the, the immediate threats and will do whatever they can to sort of mitigate those. But then when it comes to longer term threats and or perhaps threats they don't even see coming, um, it's hard to keep monitoring systems going because it's just money that's going out without necessarily an immediate return. What's the situation in, in developing countries? Well, I think that segue is particularly apt because a virus that develops or spreads in a poorer country today will affect a richer country eventually. And obviously, these things are much harder in countries that don't have the right infrastructure where people are using pit latrines or not using plumbed toilets. And obviously, these are the kinds of communities that aren't going to have the resources to have proper clinical testing either, or, you know, spread medication quickly enough in order to suppress outbreaks. So these are really communities where wastewater surveillance is the most challenging, but also the most essential. And I spoke to Gamma Bandawe, who's a medical virologist at the Malawi University of Science and Technology in Blantyre, which is the country's second largest city. And he was telling me there isn't really a sewage system. And this makes surveillance very challenging. People dig latrines and then they have uh, kind of pit latrines where uh, the wastewater soaks away into, into the ground, basically. There are a lot of people who use the rivers as open sewers as well in certain places. And so when we talk about wastewater or wastewater surveillance in Malawi, we really can't detach it from environmental surveillance. Okay. And so this feels much more complicated than an urban center with a centralized, highly inclusive sewage infrastructure where testing can just be done by lifting a manhole cover and dropping a, a sampler in. Yeah, it absolutely is. Uh, it also, in general, the amount of water uh, usage per capita is so much higher, you know, where the water ends up and trying to track that. So yes, it, it's a much more complex situation here. 
So as you said before, uh, of course, monitoring the entire world's wastewater is important if you want to spot outbreaks, especially of novel viruses and novel diseases. So can richer countries help with any of the sort of monitoring in places where the infrastructure just isn't there at the moment? So there's a lot of opportunity for them to help. And, and there are quite a few initiatives underway, whether through governments or, or, or charities. And Gamma Bandawe told me about his perspective uh, from Malawi. We've got a really exciting partnership with UNICEF, uh, WASH Malawi, and Rockefeller Foundation and the Pandemic Prevention Institute, um, University of Louisville, and there are some multi-country projects involving Uganda, Egypt, South Africa, and Malawi. And so people are pulling together to firstly work together, work across uh, regions, across countries, south-south, north-south, to actually invest in this to build capacity, to do really impactful uh, science and research on this. And, and, and all of this is happening, you know, within the last few years and months. And so I think that awareness is there and things are actually moving in that direction. So Gail, let me ask you to zoom out a little bit. You've spoken to all the people who can describe the potential of this technology. You've spoken to the people who might be funding it and you've tried to understand who's interested. I just wonder all the challenges you've laid out for these systems to sort of become real in practice. I mean, are, are these challenges going to be overcome? And are we going to see these sorts of wastewater systems actually appear in the real world? I think so. I think we're really going to see them spread over the coming years. The people I've spoken to are very enthusiastic about this and really want to spread awareness of its potential. Doug Manuel in Ottawa is optimistic about this, albeit cautiously so. Well, you know, as a public health physician, my colleagues are are a tough crowd. <laughs> and often I'm at a meeting with 200 people. I'm the only public health physician there. The environmental engineers are extremely excited about this. And the public health folks are sort of like shrug, you know, like, you know, we're doing fine without it. And it's a very finicky surveillance system and we don't see the evidence. Like everything that we're, we're seeing is just these news reports about successes. But then when we ask around, we see a lot of places that are extremely difficult to interpret. And so they're waiting for the evidence. And for me, it's sort of like I say to them, yes, it's a finicky environmental surveillance system, but the bones are very solid. And let's lift this up. Let's get the science behind. Let's find out what you need, what evidence you're looking for. And that evidence will come. And we're going to find some places it doesn't work very well or some places it's challenging to interpret. And then we're going to find other places that it works very well. The message that I take away from all this is that we really understand now the importance of public health monitoring and being able to have alarm systems that tell you when there are dangerous viruses coming towards you in a neighbouring country or in your city and tell you the levels of them in real time. This is a technology that does that. It does it cheaply. It does it inclusively. It does it in a way that's very hard to cheat. So I think that with systems like this in place, we'll be in a much better position to see a new pandemic coming to inform policymakers much more quickly and to really take action to stop it from, from spreading in the way that COVID-19 has done. Gilad, I think we can both agree that's incredibly exciting. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Alok. Thanks also to Nuhu Amin and Nusha Gailey. And thank you for listening to Babbage. You can read all of Gilad's reporting on how snooping in sewers could save lives and also our editorial on why the world should invest much more in wastewater monitoring. All of that's on our website or on our app. 
Don't forget that as a Babbage listener, you can get a special introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. Babbage This Week was produced by Jason Hoskin, Tom Pooley and Jolyon Jenkins. Mixing and sound design was by Nico Rofast and the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Jha and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.